all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Famous verses, ones you probably have memorized. Verses that we heartily say amen to. Until we read Leviticus. Or Numbers. Or Job. Or the prophecies in Daniel. And we still hold intellectually to them, but we read the text and we say, how on earth is this for me? How on earth does this idea affect me today? And so these verses that Paul teaches to us through his second letter to Timothy, these verses remind us that all Scripture is theonoustos, breathed out by God. And when they were writing them, all Scripture predominantly referred to the Old Testament, including Leviticus and Numbers and Job and prophecies in Daniel. Things that are confusing to us, things that we need to work hard to understand, things that are written in the time of and about a time that, that is, is so distant from our own current day. And yet, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable to us. Now, as we continue through Isaiah, we're going to be challenged in this because we see the same things repeated in different ways. Judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope, calls to repentance, promises of judgment, calls for the remnant, promises of the remnant. And yet all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So we must work. And the text we have before us today might be one of those texts that you've spent this week saying, This is a specific situation for a specific people that happened 2,700 and some years ago, and it's supposed to deal with me today? How does it touch me today? It's all judgment. It's all yucky. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Amen? So we need to work to say, not just what does it mean to me. We don't want to go there, do we? We want to say, what does it mean? And when we understand what it means, then we can say, what does it mean to me? So we have preached through books of the Bible that are difficult, books of the Bible that have derailed annual Bible reading plans. Genesis is cool. Exodus is okay. Leviticus, let me just skip over that. But we've preached through Leviticus, so that's no mystery to us anymore, is it? We've preached through Job. Such mysterious ramblings in Job, and yet we realize how important they are for our development because we've gone through that book together. The same thing in Daniel. And for all the New Testament, we say, well, we get that. All of that, we get that. The New Testament, we understand until we get to what? Revelation. But we preach through Revelation, so it's not a mystery to us at at all either. So my bidding to us is for us today to hear the promise of judgment to an ancient nation and everything that God says about that judgment and to the people involved and hear and understand it in its context and realize how intensely practical it is to us because it is profitable. Isaiah chapter 7. Last week we went halfway through Isaiah 7. 
And we stopped about verse 17. And we began to see this historical setting of a pagan king. A king of Judah, but pagan, no less. Offering his children to be sacrificed to Molech. Setting up altars in different places. Not worshiping God at all. And even having a prophet sent to him with a strong message. You must stand firm in faith or you will what? Not stand firm at all. Incarnate pictures of God's word as children are born and promised with names that bring the promise. A, a, a prophet that goes out to where the king is, probably surveying his water supply, realizing that if this invasion continues, he is in some trouble. Now, Hezekiah, the king that follows him, will fix that. We'll learn about that as we pro progress through um, Isaiah. But he sends Isaiah out, the prophet, with a son, Shear Jashub, a remnant shall return. Now, there's hope and judgment in that. If there's going to be a remnant, there has to be a what? A judgment where people are judged, but some will remain. And so even with such a vivid picture, I mean, just picture that. Isaiah coming out to the king. Anytime the prophet visits the king, the king should be worried, right? <laughs> the prophet visits the king. Who do you have with you there? Oh, my son, my son. Well, what's his name? I don't think I've ever met him before. A remnant shall return. And yet his heart is blinded. His eyes are blinded. Now, we looked last week at all the historical setting of the alliance between Syria and um, the northern kingdom and that they wanted to come together and they wanted the southern kingdom to join their alliance to fight Assyria, the, super, the rising superpower of the day with their king Tiglath-Pileser. And they wanted to join and, and the king of Judah doesn't want to do that, but the king of Judah is also not trusting in his God, is he? The king of Judah is going to the superpower, saying, why do I need to, to mess with these little guys who are probably going to be eaten by the big guy anyway? I'm just going to go to the superpower and go to them. Now, we also know that there had been an invasion from uh, Syria or Aram, maybe it says in your Bible, Syria and the northern kingdom that reached to the edge of Jerusalem where 120,000 men of valor and were killed and 200,000 people were taken into captivity. And so that probably has already happened. So when they're camped out, as we learn in chapter 7, again, the heart of the king and the heart of the people flutter like leaves on a tree. Now, if we would go ahead and read through the rest of 2 Kings 16 and into Kings, 2 Kings 17 and 2 Chronicles 28, we would see where this king will, I think this is before this happens. Now, I'm, now there are commentators that disagree with me. There are commentators that say he has already made his overture to Assyria, and that's why God is coming in at this point. But I think the timeline helps us see that this first invasion has already happened, and he has. it's in his mind, but he has yet to go to Assyria. And if we read through, which we will today, we would see what actually happens with that. But God, knowing the heart of men and knowing the hearts of the king, challenges him before he does this. And so we learned last week that there would be Shear Jashub, the promised child, that, or the child of Isaiah, that would, that would be this, this human picture of the word of God. But we also learned about the sign of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And we learned that this, that in, in the view that I taught last week, that this was a predictive prophecy with no local fulfillment. 
There wasn't, there's no Emmanuel in the pages of Isaiah that is locally, that we see a local child born of a local virgin, and we see that shown to us. So I think this is nodding toward Christ, just as Matthew, and we all agree that it nods toward Christ. We, we all agree that the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel is in Jesus, because if we don't agree, we don't believe Matthew, do we? Who tells us that the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of this prophecy. But... That prophecy of Emmanuel is still a time marker for us. And we learned last week that that time marker progresses into this description of judgment that we are going to see today. And I'll go back through that in just a moment to remind us. But beginning in chapter 7, verse 18, and going through 8, 8, this is where we're going to go today, 7, um, 18 through 8, 8, we could go to 8.10. We'll nod to that a little bit. There are so many transition verses in Isaiah. Sometimes it's confusing of where to attach them to. Um, and what we're going to see in these verses, we are shown three descriptions of Yahweh's coming judgment. Three descriptions of Yahweh's coming judgment. Now let's stand together as I read our text. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to start in 17, another transition verse. Yahweh will bring upon you and your people and your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. The head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land where eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and more sheep tread. Then Yahweh said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hajbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. And I, will, and, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahweh said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, a wealth of the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Yahweh spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the sons of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. 
It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. Now read these last few verses with me. Be broken and you peoples of be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ears, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So I read on into 9 and 10 because they are a transition that reach back a little bit into verses 1 through 8, but really prepare us for 11 through 22. And we'll visit those a little bit today and more next week. But in these verses that I just read, we're shown three descriptions of Yahweh's coming judgment. In the first description, Isaiah prophesies the conditions of the coming judgment. And if you... Uh, heard as I emphasize through here, we have four statements of in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day, to give us this idea of what this judgment will look like. What will it look like as Assyria overtakes the land and leaves their destruction in their wake? Look at verse 17. Yahweh will bring, in chapter 7, Yahweh will bring upon you, and this, these yous in chapter 17 are plural. Remember, we talked about the, the, the importance of whether the yous are singular or plural, because sometimes we're talking about the, the uh, king himself, and sometimes we're talking about the people. And I think I just said this wrong. In chapter 7, verse 17, the yous are singular. Did I say plural? They're singular. Just re-edit that. Rewind it. No, edit it. Edit it out. They're singular in this verse, and it's clear that we're talking about the king and the people and the king's house. So in verse 17, Yahweh will bring upon you, O king, is what that means, and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not, been, have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king. And then the dash, the king of Assyria. That's what's coming, the king of Assyria. So what Isaiah is saying, listen, from the day that, that David and then Solomon were king and the, the nation of Israel prospered and then Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they had their fight and went their separate ways. The northern kingdom separated, which was the downfall of the people. It began the downward slide. Northern kingdom with no good king. Southern kingdom with just a few. And this, this, this slide down into their deportation into other countries and God taking them into those countries, the the northern kingdom even going to lose its identity to be so wrapped up in their captors. From the day that that downward time started, this is going to be worse than that. You haven't seen anything like this since then. So verse 17 sets it up. The king of Assyria will be the one that God uses to bring upon his people this kind of destruction. So look at verse 18. We see our first in that day statement. In that day, Yahweh will whistle. Now we already read in verse, chapter 5, verse 26, that he would whistle for a country. Do you remember that? But if the country wasn't named, now we're named. 
It's Assyria. He will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt. That's at the end of the Nile. Now, what a great picture for Egypt, right? To have the Nile and its flood zones when it recedes and all those pockets of marsh everywhere and the proliferation of flies. Flies was something that the, that, that the Egyptians worshipped. Remember in the plagues, it was the fourth plague that God sent. And he sent those plagues wrapped up in all their worship to show that he was stronger than the gods of Egypt. So it's a wonderful picture that God, who is the sovereign one in control of everything, whistles and a country does his bidding. Now that's an amazing God, is it not? A country who doesn't believe in him, doesn't think he exists, does his bidding when he just whistles. Puts the fingers in his mouth, what I can't do or I would do, and whistles for them. Well, look how he does the picture even further in verse, seven, or verse 18. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So this is even more descriptive because bees are more dangerous than flies. Bees, when they swarm, are even more dangerous. And Assyria is the larger, more dangerous, more powerful country. And so we start out by saying that in that day, the Lord will do his bidding. And he will call Egypt and Assyria. And look what it does in verse 19. And they will all come. And settle in the deep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. So in other words, when they come in, it will be complete. They will inhabit everywhere. Everything that's there will become theirs. Now remember what we're talking about here. Look back up at verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, and we'll return to that idea in a moment, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what we're talking about are the two kings that he's afraid of, right? The king of, Damascus, the king of um, Syria and the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria. Those are who the king is afraid of. And God says, it's going to be no time at all. Within 12 years. This is going to happen to these countries. And that's where we're looking at in verses 18 through 25 is the destruction of those countries. But the second in that day, in that day a whistle, but also in that day a shave. Look at verse 20. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. That's the razor. And what will he shave? The head and the hair on the feet and it will sweep away the beard also. So this is an amazing verse. This metaphor shifts now to a razor where God will ultimately and completely and finally humiliate his disobedient people. That's what the idea of shaving means. It's the ultimate humiliation. It's the, it's the ultimate way that when an army would be captured, they would shave them all bald and march them forward because it was to their humiliation. In the ancient Near East, there wasn't much worse that you could do. And it says, if you'll look at your text there in verse 20, it says the, the, what will be shaved is the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. So what is the hair of the feet? Well, the hair of the feet could be two things, but it, it's all meaning the same things. It will be complete. It could just be like from, from head to toe, everywhere, from the head, the beard, the feet, but this little word for feet, according to some commentators who know Hebrew better than I do, could also be a word that describes the private parts. And so in that sense, it's still giving this completeness, that which is seen and that which is not seen. Everything about you will be humiliated. But that's not the amazing part of the verse, is it? Verse 20, in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. So... 
This has multiple meanings for us. God's people are his people. And he is functioning with them as he promised to in the covenant. But this nation, just a short time. God is going to use them for his purposes as a hired hand. And then he will fire them and he will get rid of them. And when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see what will happen to Assyria. Because yes, they did God's bidding, but their hearts were wrong. They wanted to destroy more than God wanted to destroy. So God comes against them with judgment as well. But who does the hiring? Ahaz does the hiring, doesn't he? He himself does the hiring. Turn to, keep your finger here and turn to 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings twice, 2 Kings 16. We're going to be there twice today, so if you've got a little ribbon, you can put it in there because uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to see the words with your own eyes. 2 Kings 16, verse 7. So we're jumping into this story that we started last week. We're jumping into it here in verse 7. Now, this may have happened yet, some commentators think this has already happened. Some think it's not. I think it's about to happen. If we fit Isaiah 7 into the Old Testament historical text, I think it's fitting in right before this happens, right before verse 7. But even if it's already happened, God is still dealing in exactly the same way with the king and his disobedience. And look at verse 7 of 2 Kings 16. So Ahaz sent messenger, messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying... I am your servant and your son. Now just stop there and let those words just flow over your mind. What is he saying? He's using covenant language. Israel is God's son, right? Israel is God's servant. God will be their God and they will be his people. This is covenant language that he's going to a foreign king and, and placing himself under this foreign king. And he says, I am your servant and your son. Come up. And rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. So here the king of Israel who has God as his God. And if I'm right that the challenge from Isaiah happens before he actually does that, he of all people should be pitied because God has given him himself and said, you must trust in me. There's no one other for you to trust. You can ask a sign as far as heaven is from Sheol. Nothing is beyond me and I will prove to you that I am a God to be trusted. And yet he still goes to the king of Assyria with covenant languages and the wealth of the kingdom. So it is Ahaz who hires Assyria to come shave him. And God brings it vividly back in verse, back in chapter 7 of Isaiah. He brings it vividly with this metaphor of a shave. It's that God is going to humiliate his people for their disobedience and it will be complete. Verse 21 gives us the third in that day, a diminished food supply. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone. He will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. 
Now, there are some people that say this is, this is flourishing food. This is wealthy food. But I don't think that's the picture that's being given. I think the picture that's being given is there's not many people left. And the people that do, that are left, in verse 20 it says, or verse 21 it says, in that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. That's about what it would take for a large family to eat just the minimum of what they needed. And that's all they have. There's nothing but that. Everyone who's left in the land is going to eat that because everything else is devastated, which we'll see in the next in that day statement. So I think this is that picture of the, 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 the cow and the sheep that will give an abundance of milk that will feed those who are left and all they will have to eat are curds and honey because the land will be devastated. And this is the work of God. It is doing of Yahweh because his people have forsaken him. But look at the fourth in that day statement. Not only a whistle and a shave and a diminished food supply, but in that day, a devastated land. Verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines. Now remember, this is the place that produces rich and productive vines. Where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, It's like 25 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. And that's what these vines themselves were used. It's a a picture of profuse abundance. And where they used to be will become briars and thorns. And three times we see this picture of briars and thorns, which throughout the scriptures is this picture of desolation. It's the picture of desolation of the land because of the sins of the people. In their place will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. In other words, it's going to harbor dangerous animals, and that's the only way they're coming. They're coming to hunt, not to cultivate. Verse 25, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread because there's nothing else to do. So there are not enough people even to tend to the vines. That's how extensive the destruction is going to be. And that will leave nothing but a land that's uninhabitable and unable to produce food to feed the people other than curds and honey. Now, this is the other connection, this curds and honey, to what the Emmanuel prophecy, if you'll go back up and look at that, we'll revisit this just for a moment, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz wouldn't ask for a sign, and he didn't ask for a sign not because he was holy and pious, but because he didn't want to do whatever the Lord was saying. So the Lord says, Isaiah says on behalf of the Lord, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, and he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So he will be in the devastation of the remnant, or there won't even be remnants here. He'll be in the devastation of the land that has been overcome. And who is that? That is any child that would have been born at that time. That's why the the Hebrew is very clear that the virgin, any specific one, any specific young maiden who gives birth at this time, within 12 years, that is what the state of their land is going to be. So before he is even in the state of eating the curds and honey, God is going to devastate the land with Assyria, the land of Syria and the northern kingdom. That's just also the picture of covenant faithfulness by God because in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, 27 through 39, there are a couple of other places this same language is used. This is what God promises to do if the people don't obey him. 
There are blessings for their obedience and there are curses for his disobedience. And God has entered into a covenant with his people and he's faithful to do what he said he would do. So when they're disobedient, and look at all the grace that we see in this chapter, that God comes to him. God gives him the sign of Sheer Jeshub through the, the mouth of the prophet that is listening to God. He asks him, he commands him actually to give him, to, for uh, the king to give any sign that he wants. And he'll answer that sign to prove that he's trustworthy. And the king just says, I will not tempt the Lord my God in this false piety. And so God says, I will give a sign. And that sign is to the house of David. It's to all the people who will be Yahweh's, all the people who will repent and believe and turn to him. And it's fulfilled in Christ. But even any other child that's born at this time within 12 years, all this is going to happen. And we know that it happens in Syria in 732. And it happens in the northern kingdom in 722. And this is happening about 735. So even with the prophecy, it's difficult for us to figure out. We see the clarity of what God is going to do. And because we are looking back, we see that he has done it just as he said. But he's not done, is he? I mean, Ahaz may have gone. He may have gone up. He may have gone to Assyria. And Assyria may have done what he wanted. But God isn't through with the southern kingdom. God is not through with Ahaz. So we see Isaiah prophesies the conditions of the coming judgment, but we also see that Isaiah enacts a prophetic sign of the coming judgment. And all this is about the name. In verse 1, write the name. In verse 2 of chapter 8, witness the name. In verse 3, give the name. And in verse 4, explain the name. Look how clear this is in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, so this is Isaiah. Yahweh is still speaking to him to the the people through him, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. So the same word for a tablet here is used for mirrors in chapter 323, where the the women are audaciously parading themselves with their wealth and their beauty. The same word is used for mirrors there. So this is probably a, a big metal placard that is going to be written on. And in common characters or, or the stylus of a man, it just means something that can be read. I heard one person say it's like this. It's like a billboard with just a couple of words in block letters. I think that's a good description. You remember sometimes, and we still see these periodically, where you drive by and there's a billboard and it says in gigantic letters, Jesus, that's all it says. You've seen those before? That's the kind of thing we're talking about. It's short, it's to the point, everybody sees it and everybody reads it. So God is making a prophecy here that Isaiah is to broadcast and it's important for him to broadcast it. But what is he to write? Belonging to, mayor shall our, you know, I have said this word 50 million times, probably 50 million and one. And every time I say it, it gets tripped on my tongue. Does it for you? So mayor shall our hajbaz. We had a pastor one time that named their cat. Mayor Shalal Hajbaj. Better than naming your child, right? Right? So if you look in your footnotes, maybe you have a translation that translates it. The, the different translations in the footnotes are, are a little bit different here and there, but they all say the same thing. The footnote in the ESV says, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. It seems like it's probably the idea of speeding to the spoil, hastening to the prey. And it's the idea, this is going to be quick. This is lickety split. What's about to be said is going to be quick. So we don't need to get caught up in whether it's, it's quick or prey or booty or spoil because the message is clear to us. 
This name is talking about something that's going to be quick. We don't know anything about that name yet. We just know that it's to be written and it's to be publicized. Look at verse 2. Witness the name. And I will get reliable witnesses. This is Yahweh speaking. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. So God wants witnesses and he says they're reliable. I'm not sure what reliable means completely in this when we look at who these men probably are. But what he's doing is he's saying, it's written, but nobody knows what it means yet. And I'm about to act in such a way that I want witnesses to say it was written before it happens. That's the idea. It's witnesses to say God has spoken. And so that when what he speaks comes to pass, it's easy to point back to this placard that says God already predicted this. God already said this was going to work. So who are these reliable witnesses? Zechariah could easily be um, the king's father-in-law, according to 2 Kings 18.2. The king's father-in-law is named Zechariah, so I think it's probably him. These are inner court people, people that the, that, um, the king would know, people that other people in the kingdom would know. They would be people that when they stood out and said something, people knew it would be kind of like our president and vice president and senators and, and, and representatives and all of that. We would know who they are, and that's what these are. But this fellow, Uriah, is really... Um, a story for us. I want you to turn back. I told you we'd go back to 2 Kings 26. I want you to go back there now. 2 Kings 26. No, 16. I'm sorry. If you find 2 Kings 26, you let me know, will you? Because you have a problem with your Bible or I have a problem with mine. So 2 Kings 16. We're going to pick up right where we left off. In verse 9, so Ahaz has sent the treasury to um, Tiglath-Pileser and said, I am your servant and I'm your son and I want you to come and rescue me. And the king of Assyria, verse 9, listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Reason. So that is the capital of Syria and the king of Syria. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, because he's now become his vassal, right? The king owns him. The, the, Tiglath-Pileser owns King Ahaz. And so when he went to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king reviewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before, the Lord, before Yahweh, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of Yahweh, and put it on the north side of his altar. So then he gives some commands to the priest. On that great altar, burn the morning burnt offerings and the evening grain offerings and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. And throw it all and throw 
on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. Now, if you remember when our study of Leviticus, when two men offered just strange fire, incense that wasn't commanded by God, he consumed them. What do you think Yahweh's view of this was? This is a pagan king continuing in his pagan life, disdaining his God, and he leads the people of God. And this is the faithful witness. So by faithful, my assumption is that these men would be represented the king and saying, yep, it was written before it happened. Back in Isaiah chapter 8. And about the next thing we read in 2 Kings 16 is that Uzziah dies and Hezekiah takes over. Just two verses later. This is not the way I want to be remembered in my life. Is it you? Well, Write the name, witness the name. Verse 3, give the name. Isaiah 8, 3. And I went to the prophetess. So that, that's that way of saying he went in and, and was intimate with the prophetess. Now, why is she called the prophetess? Was she a prophet herself? I think it's probably a prophetess. It could be just because she's Isaiah's wife. Or it could be because the child she's about to give birth to is a prophecy. So that would make her a prophetess. Either way, Isaiah goes to his wife, and they, um, they are in their bedchambers when he goes. I went to the prophetess, and, he conceived, and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahweh said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So now that's ne- that name is written probably on a big old placard of metal that's polished, and now a time of conception and a time of, of, of that child in the womb and then being given birth. So we are later now. Now the boy is given and the Lord says, this is the name of the boy. You see how much time is condensed just in these verses. We just jump, we jump into this condensation of time. But then he explains the name in verse four. For, this, you call your son this, For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Before he's able to do this, before he's a year and a half or two years old, this is going to happen. This is the fulfillment and his name is incarnate word again. His name is God's word wrapped up in his birth with the name God says to give him. So again, we return to speeding to the spoil and hastening to the prey of God saying, I am going to do this lickety split. It is done. I've spoken it. It will happen. And he's reminding all of the people, the king who is faded from Isaiah's view at this point because the deed is done So now Isaiah is speaking in such a way that all of the people see. So Isaiah enacts a prophetic sign of the coming judgment. The name is written. The name is witnessed. The name is given. The name is explained. And we know in 732 is when Damascus falls. 722 is when the northern kingdom falls. So all of this is wrapped up with God's judgment. Judgment on the nations that are against him. Judgment on his people when they're disobedient. And judgment against the nations, which we will see in a few chapters, that he uses to enact the judgment. But the third description of Yahweh's coming judgment, Yahweh explains the extent of the coming judgment. 
And the first thing we learn is because Judah refused the gentle streams of my provision, that's the beginning, look at verse 5, Yahweh spoke to me again, that is Isaiah, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Somalia. So who are this? Who, who are we talking about? Who are this people that he, that he mentions here because this people has refused the waters? And who, what is Shiloh? And how is that gently flowing have anything to do with it? And how is this people rejoicing over the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom? And I'll submit to you that this is the southern kingdom. This is the people in Jerusalem, in, Ju- in Judah. And they are rejoicing over the victory of the Assyrians over the Syrians and the northern kingdom. They're taking their, their hope and their trust is in this other king, in this other army who has done their bidding. And by doing this, the people have refused the waters of Shiloh. Now, there's controversy over what this actually means. Some commentators just... They say we don't know what it means, and there's some truth to that. We're not really exactly sure what it means, but here's what I think. Several commentators said the word Shiloh means sent, and we go into Mark chapter 9, and we see that when, when in Mark chapter 9, I'm looking for the verses here, I think it's 7 through 9, 7 through 11, then we see that we have the, the, uh, the pool of Siloam, And Siloam means, clearly in the text it tells us with an editorial comment, it means sent. So I'm wondering if it's the same pool. Now some people would would say that we don't know what it is, but if it is that pool, then that that is a pool or a gently flowing stream that, that flows out of or is filled by the Gihon Spring, and it would be gentle, it would be peaceful. Now, it has nothing to do with the waterways that Hezekiah is going to build in the future, right? It has nothing to do with that because Hezekiah is not king yet. So he will do this yet in the future. But if that's what this is, this is another nod toward the Davidic line because this is where Solomon was anointed. And so if this is what it is, it is, if that's the place that it is, then we're talking about another reminder of the promise to David that was also given to Solomon that will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now, whatever we're referring to, we know what it means, don't we? We know that they have refused the gentle, easy life of trusting in Yahweh. They have trusted in somebody else, and now their life is going to be turned upside down. But they refuse the good life, the good life of trusting in Yahweh. So because this has happened in verses 5 and 6, therefore, Yahweh says, I will flood Judah with the same judgment. Look at verse 7. Verse 6 starts with because. Verse 7 starts with therefore. The connection is clear for us. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, that is the people of the southern kingdom, the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. So what God is doing with Assyria, where King Ahaz thinks he's the wise one, and he's hired him out to do his bidding, and God has said, I'll use your hire to take you down. And because they're rejoicing in what he is doing, God says, they're not going to stop. 
They're bloodthirsty. They're going to come after you. And the water, just like the waters of the Euphrates, that's the river that's mentioned in verse 7, just like the waters of the, of the Euphrates will roar and it will spill over its banks. And it continues the description in verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings shall fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So multiple descriptions of a rushing river overflowing its banks, a gigantic bird with a wingspan that covers the entire nation, but the river only rises how far? To the neck. That's grace. You see it? That's grace. That's a reminder of the remnant. And we're also reminded of the remnant when the verse 8 ends with calling the land, the southern kingdom, O Emmanuel, you are the kingdom that God is with you. And so we said last week, and we reiterated again this week, when God is with us, he can be with us for judgment or for blessing. And that's what we're being shown. God is with the Assyrians. God is with Syrians. God is with the northern kingdom, all for judgment. God is also with Judah for judgment and for blessing because the remnant is promised from Judah. How do we know? Because God is still with them. This is where we need to nod into verse 9. We'll cover this more deeply next week. But the promise is, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. So all the ones that have been talking about, you, you be broken, be shattered, give ear. Strap on your armor and be shattered. You're going to come to fight and battle, but you're going to be shattered. It's even said exactly the same way twice. Then verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. You remember that from chapter 7 when we learned what was happening in chapter 7, verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. That is the plans of these smoldering firebrands, right? It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and we traced all of that out to see where that was a true prophecy. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, or Remaliah, and what is not said is the son of Jerusalem, is David. Because that is the overarching promise that guides it all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all he tells Ahaz. So now he sees the results of that. So the remnant is promised. When we get into verse 11, we'll continue with this idea of the remnant and how the remnant should be living. So in one sense, I want to keep preaching today. I don't think you'll let me do that, but I want to keep preaching and preach 11 through 22 because that makes the rest of this story. That that tells the, the... the remnant, how they're to live and what they're to look like and and what's going on and what's going to happen in their lives, even though they're in the midst of all this struggle. But because we can't cover all that in one sermon, if you were finishing your daily Bible reading with verse 8 or verse 10, which also ends with God is with us, Emmanuel, uh, translated here because it fits the poetry that's there. If you finish your daily Bible verse and reading and you shut your text, and you know there's a remnant, but you haven't been told yet how to live because you don't have time to get to chapter 8, verse 11. What do you do? What does it mean to us? If all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, then when we stop at verse 11 we're, or at, at verse 8 or verse 10, we still have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? And we've just explained what it means. So now how does it apply to us? Well, surely you feel it. Surely you look around at our nation and you see the same kinds of things happening. We may not be dependent upon 
upon vineyards and cattle as much as they would have been. We may not be dependent upon that, but we are dependent on supply chains. We are dependent on oil. We are dependent on our food. We're, we're, we're heading into this time where supply chains have been obliterated and food is rising in expenses and most people are saying food is going to be harder to get for us with no end in sight. Gas prices are rising to the, part that, to the point that it's going to continue impacting the supply chain and the food. Do you not think God is in control of this? God is sovereign, yes? He's not sort of sovereign because then you wouldn't be sovereign. He is sovereign, which means there is nothing that gets by him. Well, if God judged people in the Old Testament like this, do we not think he could judge people today like this? Do we not think we're living in judgment? Think of the shame that we have just in our nation with the leadership that we have today, saying the things that they're saying, doing the things that they're doing, taking votes in a house setting in order to guarantee everyone's right to kill babies. What kind more shame could we possibly take on? What more shame could we possibly take on that we have intelligent, well, I would have said intelligent people, let's just say educated, educated people who are making the case that women can be men and men can be women and that men can have babies. What, what kind of idiocy is going on here? It's judgment. It's not leading to judgment. It is judgment. This is Romans 1 happening before our eyes, is it not? That God gave them over. This is the results of that. So are we similar to this day? You bet you we're similar to this day. We, we are living in the same kind of day that they lived in. Now, now, don't take this too far. Don't take this as if America is Israel, because that's not. right? Just get that out of your mind. America is not Israel. America might as well be Assyria or Syria or any other pagan nation. But God is still dealing with these people, is he not? So in America, we have God dealing individually with people in different levels of judgment because of what they're doing and what they're saying and how they're living. And all those people have risen into power over the last 30 or 40 years, and they have not done it without the one who sets up kings. Amen? God is the one who sets up kings and takes them down. So our current president is judgment upon us. And if I step on your political toes, that's not my point. My point is to get you to see our world through biblical lenses. This is judgment upon the nation. Now, the nation is not God's people. The church is God's people. But the church is buried in our text, isn't it? Remember the people, the people who were um, in, because, in verse 6, because this people, that is his people, have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and, and the son of Ramalia. This is where the church is in trouble today. This is where you could be in trouble today, trying to put one hand out and hold on to this lunacy, this idiocy that's going on, and the other hand and say, but I'm a believer, and I'm holding on to Scripture. But I really want to just love them. I really just want them to know their love. Well, you're going to know, you're going to show your love for them when you say, listen, the way you're living will send you to hell. But I know a man who is also God. I know the one who, who came from the remnant and provides from the remnant. I know one who came to the face of the, this earth because of sin, who identified fully with humanity so that he could redeem a people for himself. I know this one. I know him personally. And no matter what kind of discussion that you're having in your own life, no matter what kind of pain that you're suffering, this man understands it because this man is God. So I want to introduce you to him. Now, 
if we're standing out like this and saying, oh, I love you, and, and it's okay to do this and to that and the other, and, and I don't really care how you vote, or I don't really care you know, whether you think you're a man or a woman, I just really want to love you, how on earth are we loving them? And yet many in the church are doing just this, and we can't be that people. So there's much to tell us in the rest of chapter 8 that I'm trying to stay out of, okay? Because that's next week. But this week, what is the main reason the people of God are in the place that they're in? They did not stand firm in their faith. And so, they will not stand at all. So for today, that's what we need to hammer into ourselves. When we close our Bible at chapter 8, verse 8, we say, what do I have to learn from this? Well, what led them into this, mess is they, into this mess is that they were not standing firm in their faith. They were not putting their faith and their trust in God. And you might say, well, I have my faith and trust in God. Well, do you? How many times do you make decisions in your life without even giving a nod of thought to what God would say about that decision? Not even given a nod of thought because you think, well, I know this situation. I know how to handle my 401k. I know how to handle my boss. I know how to handle my children. I know how to handle... uh, And we just live without ever thinking about God. We're functionally Ahaz. Because God says, put your faith and trust in me. God says, I am in charge of all of this mess. And I am providing for a people to worship me. I have provided a remnant, and I continue to add to that remnant. And I have provided for that remnant for their salvation, but not only for the future salvation, for today's salvation. For salvation worked out in fear and trembling every single day. So that you, according to Paul's word to to Timothy, that you can pray for the people. It's amazing. Why don't you just turn there? Um, Turn to 1 Timothy. I wasn't going to have you turn there, but I think we need to see this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, that's all kinds of prayer, be made for all people. And then he specifically says what these all people are, for kings and for all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is our calling. Our calling is to be faithful to God, to be trusting in God, to be praying for all the lunatics in our world doing all the idiot stuff, to pray for them so that we can live peaceful, quiet, and godly lives. And in the midst of those peaceful, quiet, and godly lives, we are the people who have the message of hope on our lips because while judgment is all around us, we know what? there's still hope. That's the overall message of Isaiah. We can apply this. Every single passage we're in in Isaiah, we can say this is an application. Even though judgment is all around us, there's hope. And the hope is in Emmanuel. That's the hope. The hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. That that the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory of the, of the only one of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we want truth. We don't look outside of the Bible and what has been revealed to us. We have it in Christ. We have it in the word of God. And that's the way we make our decisions. And we don't get caught up in the ways of the world. So when we're making decisions, we're turning to the scriptures and we're turning to God so that we're not functionally Ahaz. I know best. That king of Assyria is a pretty powerful guy. 
I think I need to go into his camp first because God is in control of all of this. So this morning, I want you to know this. When we wrestle with what it means to trust God, to put our faith in him, to stand firm in our faith, when we wrestle with that, every decision we make in our life will be different than if we don't wrestle with that. Every decision. Because all of a sudden, we move ourselves out of our own wisdom and into the wisdom above. One of the, ver- the verse that I, that I sign after, when I write in graduates' books and gifts that we give the church, I write for the church. Uh, and I sign it for the saints at the Bible church. And I put my name, Pastor Rob, for the saints of the Bible church. And I put Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which constantly reminds us, if, we, if, if our graduates would keep this in their mind, that they are constantly seeking the wisdom above, not the wisdom below. If they constantly do that, then they will not be caught up in the silliness of this world. We will not be the Christians that do silly things in the name of love. We will do right and righteous things in the name of love. We're not going to be those out just picking fights out on the internet, picking fights with people we don't agree with. We're going to be live quiet and godly lives so that when they come back from the battlefront, and they will come, they will come wounded. They're already starting to do this. Just search the internet for testimonies of people who have transitioned, and now they're detransitioning. Search the internet. Listen to their heartfelt testimonies of how they were lied to. Listen to how people are, are recruited when they're like 8 and 10 and 12 years old on TikTok and other, other places like that. Parents, I would tell you, get your phones out of your children's hands because this is where the recruiting takes place. And they're given this world that, of course, mom and dad are stupid. They're 8 and 10 and 12 years old. We don't learn mom and dad are smart until we're older. And so they enter into this world and they're sucked into it before many parents even know it. Read their stories when they're adults and come out of this and how they were lied to. Those people come back to the front. We need to be there with the message. And that's not standing there with a bullhorn yelling at them and making fun of them. It is welcoming them back and said, I know a person whose name is Jesus who came to the face of this earth and died for sins exactly like you're suffering the consequences of. Can I show you who he is? Can I introduce you to him? Because your sins and the judgment that you're dealing with right now and the consequences of your sins, the consequences will not go away, but you will be able to endure them because Jesus has already died for those sins. What a winsome testimony it will be. Now, next week, we'll get much more detail about how to live in, in the, as, as the remnant while well, the world is under judgment. We'll get much more about that. But today, we know that our faith and trust is in Christ and Christ alone because God is with us. And if God is with us, he is also for us. And so whatever he calls us to, wherever he sends us, we are on his mission. He knows everything that's happening. He knows everything that will happen. He will give you all the words that you need to endure it, and the faith that you have will cause you to endure that because your inheritance is secure, and you'll get there much sooner than you really realize that you will. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and we're grateful that because you are with us, you are for us. We are thankful, Father, that we can walk into this world as much of a mess as it is and not be of the world. We can be in the world so that we can tell people about Christ, but we don't have to be of the world so that the thoughts and the mechanisms and the the thought processes and the, the systems that are in place overcome us. We stand against those systems merely by standing on truth. And would you teach us that afresh today? Teach us that anew. Not that we wouldn't be like Ahaz, but we would be like Jesus. For he has lived and died and calls us to a life 
And that life looks like the cross life. And if we are to follow him, we must live in that same way. And so we are thankful for the grace that you give us because you are a faithful God, faithful to the covenant that you have made. And we are recipients, Father, of that wonderful new covenant inaugurated by Jesus, offered by Jesus, Jesus being the offering for that covenant so that you can raise us up and send us where you want to send us and we will have no fear. So we are grateful for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.